the Bible with you, um, or you're next to someone, you're able to look at theirs. I want to turn your attention in the Word of the Lord to Second Peter, chapter three. Second Peter, chapter three. The Lord prompted me on in prayer on the afternoon of uh, Tuesday, the twenty seventh. Uh, I was seeking the Lord for direction, and uh, the Lord. I believe gave me some direction and his direction to me my prayer was Lord tell me what you're saying and I'll say it we've got to learn how to pray the kind of prayers that God will respond to (laughs) and I know from experience that that's one of them and he said tell tell the people every chance you get that we are living in the last days we're living in the last days I believe that. I believe that. I preached last Sunday from Hebrews chapter 1. I believe that we are living in the last days, not just because of the signs of the times that we see in our world, and there are plenty of those, but I believe the Bible testifies to us that we are living in the last days, and we can know it for certain because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has come. And this is the age of the Messiah. This is the time of the cross. This is a time when grace and mercy and his spirit are being poured out in all the earth. And we can know just by the witness of Jesus and his work and his continuing spirit that abides with us and that's being poured out all over the face of this earth that we are living in the last days. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 1 in the New King James Version says this, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willfully forget. They willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. What does he mean by that? It isn't some kind of math formula that we can plug in to a timeline and establish the exact day that the Lord's going to return. What he's saying is that time matters not to God. Time is not an issue with God. It's not a constraining factor for God. Verse 9 says, the Lord is not slack. Now, I'm going I'm to out the preachers and tell you that, that this is a verse that we sometimes misquote, and we don't do it intentionally. But watch the way it reads. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, singular, 
not promises, but the apostle Peter's writing of one promise here. The Lord is not slack. He's, he's not slack concerning his promise. What is that promise? The promise of his coming. That's the promise that they asked about. Where is the promise of his coming? And the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, the apostle puts this forward to us. Since all these things are going to be burned away, since everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Therefore, because of that, consider what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we... According to his promise, there's that promise again. According to his promise, we look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Turn to your neighbor, if you would, and just ask them this question. What kind of person are you? What kind of person are you? You may be seated. I want to minister tonight from the word of the Lord. I want to minister tonight from the word of the Lord about the promise people. The promise people. When God makes a promise, you can count on it. I need to say that again because that's the foundation of everything else. When God makes a promise, you can count on it. It's going to come to pass. Maybe the most important promise that Jesus Christ ever made is the promise that he is going to return. Revelation chapter 1 begins that book, and he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn and wail because of him. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come the Almighty. Revelation chapter 22, in one of the very last scriptures in the entire Bible, Jesus says these words, surely I come quickly. Surely I come quickly. The apostle Paul, in this, his second letter, writes to the church, and he divides the people of the earth the end time, the last day population into two groups of people. The first, he says, are the scoffers. He says these are those who are willfully 
ignorant, they are illogical, and they are not mindful of the Word of God and the promise of His soon return. And the second category or group of people that the Apostle Peter clarifies for us is the promise people. These are people that remember that Jesus is coming soon. They remember not just as a mental agreement, but they remember in their lifestyle. They remember in their inner world. They remember in their daily walk that the Lord is returning soon. And they reject the weak arguments of this world that try to suggest otherwise and they are looking for and hastening the appearance of that last day. There are scoffers and there are the promise people. Last Sunday I ministered from Hebrews chapter 1 and I would just I would throw this out as a suggestion. You can dig into it for yourself. I don't think Hebrews is so much a letter as it is a transcript of a message that somebody preached because it's formatted differently than these other letters and epistles because right out of the gate in Hebrews chapter 1, whoever's writing down these words, just there's no pleasantries, there's no greetings. They just hit the ground running. And the first thing that the writer, the preacher of Hebrews establishes is the very same thing that the apostle Peter says was his own mission statement for writing this, his second letter to the church. He said, I want to stir up in you this holy reminder that there's some things that were said in times of old by the prophets. There are things that have come down to us by revelation through the ages. And these things are being repeated by the apostolic ministers of his generation and it hasn't changed today the message remains the same we are living in the last days there is a day coming that will be the end of all of the days and in that day there's going to be a final judgment that will issue forth from God the Apostle Peter is not appealing to a new event or a new doctrine or a new proposition of any kind, but he's appealing even in the text we read together tonight. He goes all the way back to the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis, and he says there was a time that people forget about when the earth in that day was consumed by water. And waters overtook the earth as a form of judgment from God. That God was arriving on the scene and he was there to set things right. There's a day that's going to arrive, I believe, even in our lifetimes where he is going to return on the scene once more. And he's going to set everything that's wrong right. Every enemy is going to be defeated. Every adversary is going to be under his feet. And everything that's wrong with the world and everything that's broken in our lives is going to be made right again. The early church didn't need instruction in this doctrine as though it was a new revelation from God. The apostle Peter says, I'm writing to you by way of holy reminder to remind you of some of the things that you already know. The apostle knew that in those days in the early church, you can, you can research it out and look at it for yourself, but they had greetings just like we have greetings. Sometimes Brother Walker will say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. You know, that's part of our, just our vernacular. We almost, some of us, we just say it without even really 
thinking all the way through what's coming out of our mouth. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it, 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 it makes up the DNA of who we are. It's what's coming out of us. And in the early church, they had a greeting and a goodbye and a word that they would say regularly, and it was Maranatha, and it literally just means, Lord, come. It was built into who they were. It issued forth from them without them really even being cognizant of it. It was so written in to who they were as a people. It wasn't a new doctrine. It was something that they knew in their bones. They knew when they woke up every morning that there was a day that was going to come that was going to be like the days of Noah. There were going to be things going on. There were going to be parties happening. There was going to be events taking place. There were going to be plans that were already made. And then all of a sudden, in the twinkling of an eye, there was going to be an interruption in Noah's day. It was that day when the clouds got dark and the rain started to fall. Nobody knew what that day was going to be. There were people who were arranged to be married on that day. There were funerals taking place on that day. There were family gatherings taking place on that. There were people worried about real life things on that day. But when those raindrops started to fall, none of those things mattered anymore. The only thing that mattered in that moment, in that day, was whether or not they had a ride on that ark. Whether or not they were acquainted with their only form of salvation. So it will be in this day. There's going to be things that are as yet unresolved in this day. You're going to have plans that never come to fulfillment. If the Lord would come in our lifetime, I'm going to have an appointment that I never get to go to. Because there's going to be an interruption. We're going to be going about life. We're going to be living. We're going to be having dinner. We're going to have people over to the house. We're going to have an appointment on Tuesday. We're going to have a thing we have to go out of town for next week. We're going to have a calendar full of things that never take place. Because it's going to happen that suddenly. It's just a reminder tonight. I know it's not a new doctrine. I know it's not a new revelation for many here today. But as the way of a holy reminder, there is coming a day. And we don't know the day or the hour when he's going to part that eastern sky. But rest assured, when God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. He's going to return. He's going to return for his church in a day that you and I don't know. It's not on my calendar. They were known in that generation, in the city, in the marketplace, in the schools, in their homes. They were known as the promised people. There was something different about them. They knew something down in their bones that there was coming a day that wasn't going to be like any other day. And they had to live accordingly. That's why the Apostle Peter wrote, 
He wrote to warn them and to alert them that scoffers are going to be present in the last days and that they would, hear me, they would willfully forget. Brother Dustin, is he, is he talking about the lost? Is he talking about people who just don't know any better? Well, maybe you think that. But here's what I, here's just, this is just simple logic for me. In order to forget something, you first have to know it. And he says there's going to be some in that day, scoffers, that will willfully forget. He said, he didn't say, Sister Christine, he didn't say they're going to be altogether ignorant. He said they're going to willfully forget. I've been a part of the church for most of my life. And I've tried to pay attention for as long as I can, as long as I've been grown, growing up. And, and I just don't know of a time that I can remember in my time so far on this earth where it's been, it's been easier to grow lukewarm. Where it's been easier to drift away. It's easy. I'm not saying that it's impossible to live for God because this is the best time to live for God that's ever been. But we live in a world that is pulling at us. It is pulling at us. Even though we know some things, we've got some things down in our DNA. We know some things. We know this promise. And it's never been easier to drift away. To start living in such a way that does not reflect the knowledge we have about this promise that the apostle is writing about. He said they would willfully forget. What a tragedy. Somebody who knows this truth, who's been baptized and adopted into the family of God, who's been filled with the Spirit, who's been blessed by God to scoff at the reality of the promise of his coming. People don't always scoff with their words. You can scoff in your behaviors. You can scoff in what you permit and what you tolerate. Peter writes to us and he says, here's what their scoffing attitude and actions will say. He gives us a little example. I love it when the writers of Scripture do this. He doesn't just make the statement, but he gives us a little trial run. He says, this is what it's going to sound like. He says, their scoffing attitude and their scoffing actions are going to sound like this. Where's the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. Can we just pause and recognize that that's the most illogical thing? It, here's the reasoning. It's not going to happen because it hasn't happened yet. What? That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. It's circular reasoning. It's illogical. All the dots don't connect up. 
There's something that's missing. It's a very, very weak argument. And here's, here's what I see, if I could just share as a, as a shepherd. I see this and I think this is what a person does who is creating a license for themselves to do whatever they want to do. Because the reasons we use to do whatever we want to do are never any stronger than that. They're always weak. They're always circular. All roads lead back to my flesh. And he says in the last days, there's going to be those who scoff and they're going to willfully forget. It's the kind of argument or the kind of reasoning that a person will deploy whenever they're trying to justify doing what their flesh wants to do that they know isn't right. Not just forgetting, but Brother Beecher, willfully forgetting. Willfully forgetting. You can call it backsliding. You can call it scoffing. You can call it lukewarmness. You can call it growing cold. But when you lose the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, you slide towards losing your identity as a spirit-filled child of God. Paul even writes later in the passage, verse 16, 15, 16, he says there's some letters that Paul has written, and there's some things that are a little bit challenging to understand. He said, but untaught and unstable people twist those scriptures that Paul is sending them, just like they do the rest of the scriptures. They're twisting them to their own destruction. They're contorting them in order to appease their own desires and their own agenda. And it cannot be so among God's church. Because we are fundamentally called to be the promise people. In these last days, you need to have a vibrant prayer life. You need to stay away from sin and the works of the flesh. You need to consume the word of God at every opportunity and apply it to your daily life without it being preached to you at every opportunity. You need to repent every day and you need to keep a repented spirit turning away from sin at every opportunity. The Apostle Paul sums it up and says everything I just said with these two words. He says, be mindful. Beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Because God is not slack concerning this promise, his promise. As some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us. Why? Brother Burke, because he's got value and purpose locked up inside of you, and he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Mm. Let's lift up our hands all over this room right now. The Holy Ghost is here right now. There's a witness of the Spirit here right now. Come on right now. 
The Lord is reaching for somebody right now. He's reaching. I don't know how warm you've been in your relationship with God, but he's reaching for you because these last days are upon us. This is no time to mess around with God. It's no time to play around with your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's time to draw closer to him than we've ever been. Because it says that in light of all this information that we know, the apostle goes on and he writes even more to us and he lets us know that the day of the Lord, in verse 10, will come as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is going to come at a moment that you don't expect. And it's going to be a very serious event. There's going to be a burning away. There's going to be a cleansing that happens, a melting away of everything that doesn't belong. And most of it, most of what's going on is not going to survive that event. And in light of all of that, the apostolic call to action that the apostle Peter makes, it's not a knee-jerk religious reaction. It's not a go and stock up on canned goods tonight at the supermarket reaction. It's a consider in light of all of this, what kind of person you ought to be. What kind of person are you? I want to be a promise person. We have a tendency a strong tendency to separate the promise from the personal. We want to preach about the promise. We want to talk about he's not slack. But we want to stop whenever the apostle starts writing to us about in light of all of that information, what kind of person ought you to be? We separate the promise from the personal, and we do it to our demise. We do it to our great disadvantage. We don't receive the full counsel of God whenever we get excited, or maybe in the case of some, terrified, about the promise of his coming. And we fail to connect the dots and get into the personal. The apostle doesn't mince words about it. So I'm just going to go with what he wrote down. He says there's three areas. They're right here in the text. I believe that when I stand before you, I just have this conviction. The main point of the text is going to be the main point of my message. So here's what it is. The apostles call to action in light of all the information that we have, in light of all the agreement that we have about the coming day of the Lord and his soon return. He says there's three areas that you need to really hone in on if you're going to truly consider what kind of person you are to be. He says the first one is our conduct. Who you are in your actions. The promised people are a people that are holy in our conduct. We are unashamedly holy in our identity and in our conduct. 
We don't even like the garment that's spotted by the flesh. Again, I'm not talking about a knee-jerk religious reaction, but I'm talking about a faithful growth in the direction of holiness. I'm talking about a long obedience in the same direction over the course of a lifetime that God and His Spirit work on the inside of us and change us into fundamentally a different kind of person in our conduct might be abstaining from overt sin. It might be laying aside every weight. But when you consider the days that we're living in, you had better not separate the promise from the personal. And you had better take the call of the apostle seriously when he says, you need to look at your conduct. You need to actively be engaging in spiritual things. You need to be picking up Habits that edify and build up. The second area that the apostle calls our attention to, the first is conduct, and the second is godliness. I was talking to my wife earlier this week about it, and I brought up this word, and I was just wrestling with what this word was all about. I've read it a thousand times, and I've, I was wrestling with that. I thought, that's a, that's, a, that's a cute word, but what's it really mean? I see the word God in it. That means it's good. That means it's something to be desired. But what has godliness got to do with it? Why is it different than my conduct? What is that all about? Godliness is your inner response to the things of God. It's your heart response. It's not just your conduct, but what goes on in your inner life. Everybody can see your conduct, but only you and God know the response of your heart to the things of God. Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, and he says, In the last days there's going to be some that depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. A telltale sign that our godliness isn't what it should be, that our inner response to the things of God isn't what it should be, is that we start giving up ground to the enemy in our heart and in our mind. We start letting him, letting him gain a foothold in our mind. I'm not talking about just we have days we struggle. I'm talking about we actually allow it and we tolerate it and we permit it and we allow it to go unchecked. That's the territory of godliness. Peter says that the last day promised people will be those who are defined by a hunger for God, who have an internal willingness to respond positively to God's spirit and God's word. There's no one, there's not a group of people on the face of this earth that ought to be faster to respond to the spirit of God and the preached word of God than apostolic Pentecostal believers. The promised people ought to be the first people on their feet. They ought to be the first people on their knees. They ought to be the first people in the altar. They ought to be the first people with their hands raised. I'm talking about that internal response for the things of God. Be careful you're not entertaining what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy about, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Here's what he says just a few verses later. He's on the same topic. It's 1 Peter chapter 4 for the note takers. In verse 8, he writes on and he says, bodily exercise profits a little bit. That's a message for somebody. 
He says, it profits a little bit to exercise your physical body. I'm not down in that. It's a good thing. Most of us could probably do more. But godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise, there's that word, promise. Having promise of the life that is now and the life which is to come. Godliness is the singular thing that's going to make the difference. You can... <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can fake me out on the conduct. You can. you can. You can do all the things, and you can go through the motions, and you can fake me out. You really, and you can probably do it for an awfully long time, as long as I don't get to know you too awful well. But godliness, mm, you're not going to counterfeit that. You're not going to counterfeit that. It's either you got it or you don't. It's either you're cultivating it or you aren't. It's either, you, it's either your heart and mind leaps at the idea of responding to God or it doesn't. Let me tell you two other things about godliness. These are just for free. First, is that you need to distance yourself from anyone who professes to have a heart response to God, but their life doesn't match up. If they profess to have godliness, but their conduct doesn't match up, I know that sounds like a harsh word, but Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, in the last days, perilous times will come, and there'll be some that have a form of godliness, but they deny its power from such people turn away. It's harmful to your spirit to be around individuals on a regular basis in your inner circle that profess to have what I'm preaching about, that inner response of godliness, but their conduct doesn't match up. It is harmful to your spirit. The second is never forget that there is blessing and strength in cultivating an inner life that finds its greatest joy in pursuing the things of God. The psalmist wrote, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Sounds a lot like scoffers to me. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. He will be like a tree. What is the fruit of godliness? He will be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. What I'm preaching about when I'm camped out on this godliness topic is going to be the single greatest source of strength for your spiritual life. Your spiritual life is not going to be sustained and fed off of conduct. God bless the conduct. God bless the works. God bless the manifestations and the demonstration of faith. We need it. If you don't have that, there's something wrong. But godliness is the strength factory. Godliness is the engine of your spiritual life. It's going to give you strength when the rest of your world is falling apart. It's going to be that desire, that cultivated place, that inner place in your world where that says, I'm going to respond to God no matter what anybody else is doing. How do you think those three Hebrew boys and Daniel did what they did 
in Babylon. It wasn't because they'd practiced and rehearsed the conduct. It's because they had an inner life of godliness. That's how you get strong enough to live in Babylon and stay saved. We're living in Babylon, in case you didn't catch the connection. We're living in the last days, in a, in a day that is wicked and vile and lewd, and the enemy is prowling, seeking whom he may devour. It is a modern-day Babylon out there. And if you're going to survive, and you're going to live for God, and you're going to hear well done on that day, it's going to be because you have an inner life of godliness that is intact and thriving. The last thing that the apostle wrote to us, and he says, you need to consider your conduct, and you need to consider your godliness. And this last one's going to seem like it don't amount to very much, Brother Walker, but hear me out. He says, you need to make sure that you're looking in the right direction. He says, looking and hastening on the arrival of that day. He says, we look for that day. We look for the new heavens. We look for a new earth. Where you're looking matters. There's nothing that will rot and decay your conduct and godliness like continually fixing your eyes on the wrong thing. And I'm talking about our physical eyes, and I'm talking about our spiritual eyes. I think most of us in the room, but I'm not going to take it for granted, know the story of Lot in Genesis. Lot was the nephew of Abraham, the father of faith, and they traveled together many miles and they came to a point where the Lord had blessed them and favored them so abundantly that their herds and their families and their clans and tribes were so great that they had to divide and they couldn't stay together any longer. And so Abraham said, you know what, Lot, I'm, gonna get, I'm, just, I'm just a nice enough guy. I'm going to let you have the first choice of which way to go. And Lot decided, he, 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 he surveyed the entire territory, and he said, I want to go over there in that area. And he looked to the well-watered plains of Jordan. And the scripture records that as he went to that place, he got into the habit of setting up his tent. They were, they were nomadic people. They, had to, they grazed their cattle, and they would move from place to place. And every once in a while, they had to move. And every time they would move and reposition, the scripture says that Lot started positioning his tent so that the front door, when he walked out of it, he was looking at Sodom. Sodom was a city that was full of vileness and wickedness and all kinds of filth and nastiness and sin and rebellion against God. And Lot started configuring his camp in such a way to where he could sit on the front porch in the morning. And he was positioned in such a way that he saw Sodom. He saw Sodom. Scripture goes on and the story continues, and I'll hasten on and just tell you that it doesn't take very long. And he's not looking at Sodom anymore, but he's in Sodom. And then the worst thing of all happens. Sodom got inside of him. And Sodom got inside of his family. And the scripture tells of a day that came, a judgment day, when things finally came to a head, and God was about to destroy that city, and there was an extraction that took place, angels of the Lord, there was a divine intervention that took place, and the angels of the Lord came to extract Lot and his family 
from that wicked, wicked place. In the process of that extraction, Lot's wife died. Lot's daughters became sexually perverted and manipulative. His sons-in-law, the ones his daughters was married to, the scripture says in just one single verse that Lot tried to warn them of the judgment that was going to come, but they thought he was joking. What does that tell us about Lot? Lot was no longer a person that could be taken seriously. What in the world? Lot's entire identity disintegrated in Sodom. And it all started with what he was looking at, the direction that he was facing. Direction matters. Can I tell somebody? Let me give somebody a word of hope because that may seem harsh to you and scary to you. Direction is more important than location. You may not be where you think you ought to be in God yet. You may not have arrived yet, but if you're facing the right direction, there's hope for you today. Direction is what matters most. You need to make sure that you're looking the right way. The promise people are people who are defined by their conduct, which is holy, by their godliness, and by the direction that their life is facing. That tells me that promised people aren't, don't have to be people who have it all together, Sister Bree. They don't have to be people who have all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, but we have to be facing the right direction. The promised people have a spiritual north star. We're so close to the day of the Lord that you need to daily, 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 daily calibrate your life around the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't need to wait for Sunday or Wednesday to come for a checkup on your direction that you're facing. We don't have that kind of luxury. We're too close. We're too close. You need to have a daily adjustment in the direction that you're facing. It happens whenever we get into a place of prayer and we kneel down before God and we get an audience with Him and we let the Spirit dictate which direction our life is facing. We need it every day. Brother Cade, we need it every day if we're going to be the promised people. You need to look every day into the Word of God and receive something from God for yourself. That's what Jesus meant when he told his disciples continually to watch and pray. There was one thing that was going to determine their success in living for him as disciples of Jesus Christ. And it was going to be their willingness, their ability, their tenacity in following that one command. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. We have to have it every day as the musicians come. Since we are looking forward to these things, verse 14 says, we're just going through the text. If you've got your Bible open, you can follow along with me. Since we are looking forward to that day and looking forward to those things, the apostle writes to us and he says, be diligent, be diligent. Do you know what that word means? That word means consistent, consistent discipline. It means every day. 
since we are looking forward to that day, be diligent to be found by him, to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. There was a day, Savannah, that the scripture testifies to us that the Lord, that Noah found favor. The Lord searched the face of the earth and he found one. He found one man and one family who was able to say, you know what? We're going to be the promised people. He started with just a family, just a core family. And he says, we, we found favor in the sight of God. And God did a mighty work in the days of Noah through Noah and his family. In those eight people, he saved the entire human race and salvation went forth for the whole earth. There was a mighty work that was done. And it was restricted in those days just to those eight individuals. Then as the story of God goes on, it grows that, that those, in, those just few individuals grow into what would later become a nation, a people group, a whole ethnic group, the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites. And out of that people group, there would be one born who would be the Messiah of the whole world. And that Messiah would usher in a new age, the age of the kingdom, the age of grace, the age of the new birth experience, the age of holiness and the outpouring of God's spirit upon all flesh. And no longer was the people of God restricted to just a small nuclear family. No longer was the people of God restricted to even just a nation or a people group or an ethnic group. But now the church was coming onto the scene and the church was a church for everybody. It didn't matter what family group you were from. It didn't matter what your background was or what your skin color was or what part of the world you hailed from. And there's a day that we're living in today that we like Noah can be found. That's why the apostle Paul says, knowing all these things and looking forward to that day, be careful that you like Noah are found in peace, without spot, blameless. And he says, consider, verse 15, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. I don't know if you caught it, but that's the second time that word is used in this passage. It's used in verse 9, and it's used there in verse 15. Long-suffering, patience, the patience of God is so great. How long has he waited for each and every one of us so that we might find our way to him? Verse 9 is the verse that says, God isn't really slow about his promise like some people count slowness, but he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. In this room, there are promised people. And there are some who allow, have allowed a scoffing spirit, a spirit that's just resistant to everything that God wants to do in your life. This verse that the apostle wrote is for us. That word, long-suffering, is for you and I. He's long-suffering 
toward you and me. We've talked a lot this week or this, this year about becoming, becoming. What kind of person are you? What kind of person are you becoming? Stand with me if you would and hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 12. Jesus told his disciples this. He's speaking of himself and he says this, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. I asked tonight, you asked one another, what kind of person are you? I want to be a promised person. I refuse to separate the promise from the personal. And I think the Lord wants to do something personal in this room tonight. Can we lift up our hands all over this room right now? I want to invite you to come and make a move towards this altar and make this. It would be good. It would be appropriate if every person under the sound of my voice right now, if you're physically able to, if you would find your way to the front of this building and you would let God get personal with you. We believe in a promise. We have an identity as a promised people. There's a day coming where that promise is going to be fulfilled and the eastern sky is going to split wide open and the Lord's going to return for his church. But until that day comes, we need to get personal with him. We need to get personal with him in our conduct. We need to get personal with him in our godliness. We need to get personal with him in the direction that our life is facing and in what we're looking at. We need to get personal with him. Don't separate the promise from the personal today. Become a promised person today. Get renewed in your identity as a promise. Find that North Star today. Find that calibration point in the Word of God. Maybe it's a word from tonight that was for you, that was directly for you, that you've been waiting to hear from the Lord. There's one promise that ought to give you hope. There's one promise that ought to drive you to an altar, and it's the promise of His coming.